theyeshiva.net. Tonight and next week is going to be a two-part series entitled, quote, end quote, I hate davening. And that is a direct quote from uh, more than one person. I'm not going to give a number of how many people. I tried to compress it all tonight, but I saw that it will be wiser to uh, disperse it at least over two weeks. So let me begin with an anecdote, a Milsa de B'dichus, a humorous anecdote. There were two Jews, Berkowitz and Rabinowitz, who were friends and business partners. And Berkowitz calls up Rabinowitz one day and he says, we haven't been out in a while. This Saturday morning, 8.30 p.m., we're going to play golf. Berkowitz tells Rabinowitz, no way. Change it to Sunday, 8 in the morning, not Saturday. He says, why? What's the problem? We always went golfing Saturday morning. He says, Saturday morning I go to shul. I go to synagogue. He says, you? You never stepped foot into a shul, besides the fact you're an atheist. When you were a child, you were a communist. You have nothing to do with religion. You don't believe in any religion, in any God, in Judaism, what are you telling me, Baba Mises, that Shabbos morning you're going to show? So Berkowitz says, he says, you only knew me till Goldstein came to town. That's when I never went to show on Shabbos. But once Goldstein came to town, everything changed. You remember Goldstein? He came from Russia. He didn't have two dimes. Today they say that he's worth $6 billion. I asked him, what changed Goldstein? And he tells me I started to go to shul, Shabbos morning, I speak to God, and that's where all my success comes from. And since that day, I go to shul also Shabbos morning. He says, Goldstein Ahar, Goldstein Ahin. You're a real atheist. What in the world are you doing in Shul Shabbos morning? You're telling me that you go daven, you go pray? I don't believe you. He says, no, 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 you misunderstood me. Goldstein goes to Shul to daven. I go to Shul to talk to Goldstein. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm sure you're aware of how instead of davening being the most awesome and meaningful experience... It's the most boring and agonizing experience for thousands and thousands of children, teenagers, adults, and even senior citizens. I can easily speak for myself. Most of the time, davening is at best a chore that I must fulfill, at worst, a very negative and always a monotonous and boring and meaningless experience. I am a teacher in a school. I am a Rebbe in a good school. I'm going to be honest with you. 
I try my hardest to have my students daven as little as I can get away with, without the parents getting angry at me that their sons are not davening enough. I'll tell you why. I try always to be honest with my students, and I don't feel comfortable encouraging them to do something that I have such difficulty with. I feel that if we daven long, I am motivating an unhealthy exercise that will damage their relationship with God forever, and their chances of really experiencing what davening, I suppose, was meant and supposed to be. I can't cancel it out. I don't want to. I can't even make it short because the parents and the principal will be on my head. But I really make it as short as possible. I write to you a blessing. May God bless you with the knowledge and insight to guide us, Jews, parents, teachers, teenagers, children, adults, to have a healthy, meaningful, vibrant, joyous experience when davening. And maybe you can even tell us how to practically implement it unless you don't know yourself. In my humble opinion, this is definitely one of the most critical issues that need to be addressed. I am also involved in Kirov, and I personally know many who have told me how much prayer was a turning point in demonstrating to them the meaninglessness of Judaism. Maybe you could start by telling me, why in the world do we daven? What is its purpose? And why does God have to hear from hundreds and thousands of millions of people, hallelujah, 20 times, praise Him more and more and more. Usually husbands who need so many compliments need a lot of therapy. Why is it that the Master of the world wants me to praise Him again and again and again nonstop? I hope you can address it. This was a letter that came in the email to emuna at the yeshiva.net and everybody is welcome to send in their questions. Here's another one. I don't feel a strong connection by doing anything by rote. I feel it would be so much more meaningful if prayer wasn't institutionalized. Let's get real. Take a look around in shul. What percentage of people show any real connection? It's shockingly low. There are those who behave, there are those who misbehave. But do you see real passion by people? Do you see a meaningful experience? Do you see any real connection? I'm sure there is some reward for it anyway, but it's really not motivating me. For the record, I have a philosophy. I don't practice what I preach. I'm one of them. No interest to me. Maybe you can address it. Another letter, a third letter. I'm going to be blunt with you, since sometimes I think you're closed-minded, but sometimes I think you're (laughs) open-minded. Thank you for the compliment. Tell my mother-in-law. She thinks, okay, whatever. (laughs) But at least sometimes I'm open-minded, so that's good. Or bad. I'm going to be blunt with you. I really despise prayer. I despise davening. From childhood, for me, shul is one big negative experience. It is so, so boring. I haven't come to shul for many, many years. It simply means nothing to me. I'm one of the Jews they call JFK, just for Kiddush. But I don't need people asking me questions, so I just stay away. I have a problem now, I'm a father. As long as my kids were babies, it wasn't an issue. Now they're growing up. They want to go to shul. My wife wants me to take them to shul. I want to do the right thing. 
But as I walk into the synagogue, it brings up so many memories that really make me so disengaged and disinterested. Any way I can solve this. I'm going to read one more letter. Don't you think it would have been much wiser, Rabbi Jacobson, if the sages would have said, Davin, what is in your heart? Speak to God from your own place. Tell him your thoughts and share with him your emotions. Why this fixed text that is unchangeable and not once a day, three times a day? There are people praying for decades, every day the same exact words. How can any normal human being find excitement and passion in this in a positive way? I know there are some people who are OCD and probably it works for them. But I'm ADHD. <laughs> what am I what am I supposed to do? Okay. Many letters of this vein and similar different styles, different questions were received. Some of them I'm going to go through later. But I want to begin addressing these questions. Now I do have to say, it's always difficult for me to think, what am I supposed to say in one class, even in two classes? But all long journeys begin with steps. We can begin to take the necessary steps. Why do we daven? Why do we pray? What is its purpose? What's the point of it? Whenever you have such a question, when it comes to Judaism, you always have to look into the Rambam. The Rambam, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, also known as Maimonides, I translate everything, I try to translate at least many things for those who don't understand Hebrew or Yiddish, lived in the 12th century, 1100s in Spain, and in Morocco, and in Egypt. And he is considered the great systemizer, codifier, and organizer of Judaism. And therefore, always, one looks at the Rambam to get a definition. Not just a law, a definition, a hagdara as it's called. So you open up Rambam, Hilchis Tfila, Perik Aleph, the laws of davening. And the Rambam begins and he says, Mitzvahs asay lizpalel b'chol yoyim. It is a biblical, positive Torah commandment to daven every single day. The source is a posik v'avadatem es Hashem elekechem in mishpatim, you should serve God. How do you serve God? We say in Shema, The only service in the heart is davening. And the Rambam says, this is a biblical commandment every day, but there's no number how many times one davens. There's no text of what person davens. There's no time for when a person davens. The biblical mitzvah of davening can last for 35 seconds or 35 minutes or 4 hours. There's no text. There's no time, day and night. There's no number of tefillahs. Ella, what is it? Chiyuv mitzvah zukachu. The obligation of the mitzvah of davening is this, the Rambam says. Sheyei adam mispalel umischanen b'chol yoyim. A person should pray, mispalo, we'll soon see what that means. Mispalo, we tr- translate pray, even though it's not the real translation. 
but it's the English general translation, mispalali, a person should daven, or mischan and plead, b'chol yom every day, umagit shvachish al-Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and utter, communicate the praises of God, v'achekach shoyel tzrochev shu tzarech lan v'vakashu b'tchin, afterwards he or she requests the need that this person needs, the person expresses gratitude for all the goodness that he or she received in life. Every person does the above according to her or his individual capacity. As he goes on, one person davens once a day, one person davens many times a day, one person does it for a long time, one person does it for a few moments. This is how it went from Moshe Rabbeinu till Ezra. Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, is the one who gave the Jewish people the Torah and all the mitzvahs, including the mitzvah of davening, until Ezra, who was one of the builders and architects of the second Beis HaMikdash, who lives approximately one millennium after Moshe Rabbeinu, because Moshe Rabbeinu takes the Jewish people out of Egypt, they're 40 years in the desert, they come into the land of Israel. After 480 years, they build a Beis HaMikdash. It stands for 410 years. It's destroyed. After 70 years of exile, Ezra takes them back up from Babylonia to resettle the Holy Land. So this is approximately 1,000 years that Tefillah has absolutely no structure, no text, no time, no background, no style, no minyan, no minyanim, no gaboyim, imagine. No rabbis, no sermons. And then the Rambam says, in the beginning of Bayez Sheni, as the Jews come back from exile, the group known as Anshei Knesses Hagdoila, the men of the great assembly, create a structure of davening known as Shmoyne Esrei, 18 parts of the davening, first three, the last three, and the middle 12, and then they added a 13th, so from 18 it became 19. They also established a number of prayers, a shachris, a mincha, and a, uh, and a mairiv, as the Rambam continues at length. So this is the Rambam's always very halachic, practical definition of Tfila with his brief history, with a description of who's obligated, when you're obligated, etc. I'm going to take these words of the Rambam and try to dissect them a little bit, especially in a more contemporary language that could speak to many of our minds and many of our hearts and speak about both dimensions the Rambam spoke about. He spoke about praise, he spoke about needs, and he spoke about gratitude, three aspects that the Rambam spoke about. And I think the best way to convey it is by talking about one particular person who davened, who prayed. And this is not just a uh, prayer, a davening, but the Gemara says in Brachus, I think it's Daf Lamed or Lamed Aleph, that some of the most important laws of how we daven, we derive from this prayer of a woman named Chana in the book of Shmuel. Shmuel uh, Aleph tells the story of Chana's prayer. It's said in the Haftarah of Rosh Hashanah. And from this description, the Gemara says, we derive many of our laws of prayer. 
The story is well known. I'm going to focus on one detail. Hannah didn't have children. And this perturbed her deeply. Her husband Elkanah was a fine man, a great man, a noble man. But the fact that she didn't have children did not give her any rest. Even though Elkanah said, A relationship with me should be so valuable and precious, but for Hannah, not having a child was uniquely painful. And one year, they come to the Mishkan of Shiloh, to the sanctuary of Shiloh, which was the center of the divine presence at the time, before there was a Beis HaMikdash. And Hannah goes into Davin. And the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, is watching her Davin. And the Pasuk says, where is it? Shmuel Aleph, I think Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Gimel. Her lips are moving, he doesn't hear her voice. He looks at her and he considers her a drunk, an inebriated, intoxicated Shikaira, drunk person. And he addresses her. He says to her these words, Admosai Tishtakarin, Posik Yudalit, Samuel 1, 14. How long will you remain drunk? It's time to remove your wine from yourself, or as somebody would say, go to AA. It's time for recovery, lady. Alcoholism is not a way to live. Chana responds, and she says, my master, you're wrong. I did not drink wine or alcohol. I am a woman who is broken. I came to pour out my soul before God. And when Eli hears this, he blesses her and tells to her that her prayer is fulfilled and God should give her a child which indeed occurs the next year, Shmuel, young baby Shmuel is born. I ask you a question. If you see somebody standing at an Aron Kodesh, not at a Mishkan, at Aron Kodesh, a holy ark in a shul, davening, whispering quietly, you can't hear their voice, you accuse them of being a drunk, Forget a coin goddle, a regular person. You see a woman praying, pouring her heart out. And he asks her why she's drinking? You would expect from a high priest the minimal ability to discern, the minimal sensitivity to distinguish between somebody who smashed, forgive me, to somebody who's praying. And the moment she says, I'm not drunk, what do most alcoholics tell you when you accuse them of being drunk? What do they tell you? <laughs> Me? I could walk straight. Right? And they walk straight and they fall from one part of the city to the other part of the city. I can even drive. Then you get a call from the police. All drunks tell you, I'm not drunk, I don't drink. You have the problem, I don't have the problem. Drunk people are drunk. So when she says, I'm not drunk, he's, oh, oh, okay, God give you a child, fine. You really believe she's drunk or not? And remember, the Kohen Gadol is considered the, the greatest spiritual, or one of the greatest spiritual giants of the time. How can Ailey make such an error, make such a mistake? This, and I'm basing the explanation on an insight by the Chassam Seifer. Reb Moshe Seifer was the rabbi of Prezburg 
in the Austro-Hungarian Empire today, Bratislava in Slovakia, passed away in 1839, known as the Chsam Seifer, and he gives an insight that I'm going to elaborate on. When Eli looked at Chana Davening, he saw something unique. He saw a person who on one hand was wounded, she was full of pain, but when he looked at her, he also saw a person that was full of joy. He saw a person that was sad, and he saw a person that was happy. He saw a person that felt very dejected, but he saw a person who felt embraced. He saw a person in the abyss, and he saw a person in heaven. Now when do you see such people? When people are drunk, one moment they'll tell you, I love you, I love you, my best friend. A moment later, smack, I hate you. That's what drunk people do constantly. If you have a little experience. They'll explain to them how you are, they'll explain to you how you are the devil incarnate, and then how you're a saint. You're their brother, and you're their foe. They'll kiss you, and they'll beat you. I'm talking about people who are really know how to get smashed, or don't know how to get smashed. When Eli sees these inconsistencies in Hannah, he says, what are you taking? You're not sober. That's not how you build a life. I know you have misery. I know you have sorrow. But drinking is not the way to deal with it, lady. You got to figure out how to live life in sobriety, not in denial. They say there was once a Jew who liked to drink. So he would go to the bar, and each night he would order two glasses of Crown Royal. Why two? One for himself. He said one he had a friend he used to drink with, and the friend died. So he goes every night to continue drinking, in memory of the friend, to carry on the friendship, one for himself, one for his friend. After 30 years, he comes into the bar, and he orders one glass of alcohol. So this bartender says, what's this? He says, I quit drinking. <laughs> so denial is not only a river in Egypt, it's part of people's lives. You have to wake up over there in the back. And uh, he's telling her, that's not how you deal with your sorrow. I told you once an alcoholic told me, we drink to drown our sorrow. Little do we know that sorrow floats. This was Ailey's message. Such transition, such a metamorphosis, such drastic contrast you see in a shikr, in a drunk. So Hannah, who understood what Eli was saying, says, Lo yadoini. I get you, but I'll explain to you who I am. I'm a woman who has a heavy spirit. There's something that really bothers me. There's something that perturbs me. And that's why you see a sadness. You see pain in my eyes. You see a void. And you see a yearning that exists in me, which causes me very often to weep, to sob, and to cry. But there's another part of me. As I come here, I pour my soul out before God. I am not a person who feels like a victim, alone in the world, a nebach case, lost in a huge planet where nobody can really care about anybody else. And you just have to make the best of your life. No. 
That's not my experience of life. I feel like I have a best friend to talk to. I can pour my soul out before God who listens to me and listens to me attentively. So Chana is saying, I'm a scarred person. I'm a person who has pain. But when you look at Chana, Eli sees stateliness. He sees dignity. He sees majesty. Why? Chana says, because I feel that there's someone as eclipsed as he may be who actually cares about what I have to say. Somebody who stops everything and says, Chanele, or Rifkele, or Sarele, or Yankele, tell me what you have to say. When I speak, the world stops. As he says, I want to know what is your experience, what is going on. This is how the Chsam Soif explains Chana's response. And I believe what is at this insight is, of course, there's one basic element of prayer where a person asks for what they need. Every individual has needs, sometimes superficial ones, sometimes deep ones, sometimes the needs change, sometimes they don't. And as the Rambam says, you ask for your needs from the Creator and the Conductor of the Universe. And sometimes, and everybody knows this in their personal life and had heard it from others, Prayer works in a very tangible and concrete and real way, but not always. Not for all people, and not in all situations, and not all the time. And I should say something. There's a mistake that people make, that sometimes you dive in and it has no effect. It always has an effect. The question is, when, where, to whom, and on what level? I find sometimes it's difficult for children, they're saying to Hillam, for a man... Who already the, the, the family already uh, the doctor signed off, but they're saying till them in all the schools. Twenty minutes later, the person passed away. Children have often asked me. Every few weeks, you're saying till them for somebody else, and it doesn't work. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. What does that do for them? Every tefillah works. A soul exists in this world. A soul exists in the next world. And every time we pray, it has an effect and an impact, sometimes in a concrete way, and sometimes in very subtle and profound ways. But there's no such a thing, from a Jewish perspective, a prayer that goes unnoticed, unheeded, and unresponded to. When a person davens for somebody, it has a tremendous, tremendous impact. The question is, where, what, when, how, and on what level? Because life is extremely multidimensional, multi-complex. I just wanted to mention that. So what Chana is saying is, tefillah, we translate as prayer, requests. Really, the word tefillah means something else. In the Mishnah and Kalim, there's an expression, hatoifel kleicheres, aligning, connecting, tying together, putting together. Because prayer is not only pleading, begging, asking. It also means connecting, linking, aligning. The primary mission of prayer is to connect. To allow yourself to know and feel that you're not alone in a brutal world. That the world is not deaf to your cries, to your dilemmas, to your pain, to your trauma, to your needs, to your experiences, big or small. 
We live in a world where it seems the world is death. In some philosophies, we're just random errors, random genetic mutations, who with some good or bad luck, ended up here some 15.3 billion years after the Big Bang. Stephen Hawking died this, this, uh, this week. Some of you are familiar well with his uh, various ideas. The basic essence of prayer is to know that you're connected. The world is not deaf to your cries and dilemmas. You have an ally. You have a best friend who conceived you in love, who wants to see you live the most awesome, powerful, and successful life, who craves for your success, who craves for your goodness and wants a personal relationship with you. I am not alone in this world. Maybe kshas ruach, but ve'eshpeich es nafshi lifnei Hashem. Echab midvem in as they say in Yiddish. Yitzchak Shamir was the prime minister of Israel, and he was a tough man. A survivor of the Holocaust, lost most of his family, and Bush, the father, was pressuring Israel very, very heavily. In the early 90s, George Bush, President Bush, the father, and... Uh, and the joke was going that uh, when Bush came to Israel and uh, he went to the Western Wall, so Shamir took him and he said, this is the Western Wall where Jews prayed, the divine presence is here and now people's requests are fulfilled and people put in notes and so on and so forth. So Bush prays and he puts in a note and then he tells Shamir and he says, and now let's pray to God that Israel and the Arabs agree to concessions. He says, now you're talking to a wall. You gotta know, are you talking to a wall or are you talking to a presence? Once it's from Dr. Tversky, he said he learned davening at the Kaisel. What? He was there, and he's standing and he's davening, Mincha, Mayrif, saying to Hillam, and there's a Jew near him, and the Jew is talking in a modern Hebrew. And he starts saying, So I went to the dentist, he's, he's at the wall, I went to the dentist, and the dentist took an x ray. And he started to tell me, oh, I told this to you yesterday. Let's continue with today. <laughs> I was once in a, I once lived in a building in Brooklyn on New York Avenue. So I went out to get the mail. They have the mailboxes. So there was an African-American holy brother standing by the elevator and talking, talking. This is before the days of the cell phone. So when somebody stood on the elevator and spoke... You assume that they talk to themselves. There was once a Jew who came to a rabbi and he says, Rabbi, I need help. He says, what's the help? He says, I speak to myself. I talk to myself. The rabbi says, I'll tell you a secret. When you hit 60, that's what you do. I do the same thing. He says, Rabbi, but I am a nudnik. So he's standing by the elevator and uh, it's too late for you. What's the problem over there? He's standing by the elevator and eret, eret. So first I thought there's an issue. I took a look. I saw he was a plumber. And I was curious. Because I saw on his face he seemed very sane and normal. And I had an office there on the fourth floor. So I was going to the elevator. And I go over to him and say, You mind if I ask you a question, my dear holy brother? He says, No. I said, Who are you talking to? I saw you standing at the elevator and talking. He said, I'll tell you. Whenever I have a few minutes in the middle of the day, I talk to God. I tell him what, was, what I was up to. And I tell him what I'm up to. I give him a report. I ask him to be with me. And he says, Rabbi, you do it. It's a good thing to do. 
That's number one. But there's something else. And when I say there's something else, this is not to negate the need to internalize this experience. Because this knowledge, this conviction that exists in the person who davens, that I have a best friend in the world who wants to know what is happening in my life and wants to be there to hug me and listen. And if you realize, God is better than a therapist because he never interrupts you in the middle of talking. Not like a spouse or a friend who always has eights. God never gives eights. You realize that? Did it ever happen to you? In the middle of davening, God says, Whoa, 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 wait, I have an opinion. Whatever you want to say, he's quiet. He answers you when he, want to, when he wants to answer you, how he answers. God answers in his own way. But he doesn't interrupt. You have to learn from that how to listen to somebody. They tell an anecdote that Pavarotti was once doing a rendition, an opera rendition of Psalm chapter 23. You remember what that is? Mizmar Ladavid, Hashem Roi the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. A beautiful Pavarotti rendition, as he concludes, he gets a standing ovation for a few moments. Afterwards, an Altayid, an old Jew, says, do you mind if I do my rendition of Psalm 23? I have my own. He says, go ahead. And the Jew begins reciting Tehillim, chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd, there's only one problem. He can't carry a tune to save his life. He doesn't know the every, he doesn't know the words. But his emotions are there. His heart is inside, in words, his soul is present. And as he starts saying the psalm, people start crying. He finishes, Pavarotti says, I have a question. I did that psalm impeccably, immaculately, and yet nobody cried. I got an applause. You get up, you say it. A tune you can't hold. Your voice is horrible. It's horrific. You can't even carry the words. You don't have diction. You don't have grammar. Why is everybody crying? My psalm was much more superior to yours. And he says, Mr. Pavarotti, you may know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. That makes all the difference. The intimacy, the personal relationship. But let's go to the next step. And the next step... I feel even bad to go away from this step because I think people really need to understand it and feel it and hear it, but let's move on. I'll rely on your intelligence as the Pasuk says, Ten l'chachem v'yechkam oid. Ten l'shoite v'loyechkam oid. That's my Pasuk. Another davener, another person who davened, as everybody knows, Yaakov Avinu goes to sleep at night. He gives us Mayriv, the gift of Mayriv. He goes to sleep, he has a dream, the ladder on earth touching heaven. He wakes up, and what are his first words? God is here, and I did not know. So the commentators ask, grammatically is problematic. In English, it would be saying, and I, I did not know. It's good for a poem, but for a sentence, it's problematic. 
Either you say, V'anoichi lo yeida, or V'lo yodati, I did not know. In Hebrew you say, V'lo yodati, I did not know. V'anoichi lo yodati is redundant. So koifaloshen, V'anoichi, and I, lo yodati, I did not know. So the Panem Yafas, the Balaflor, Pinchas Halevi Yishorowitz, student of the Maggid of Mizrich, says, what Yaakov was saying is, V'anoichi lo yodati. I did not know Anoichi. Ochin yesh Hashem b'amokim azeh. God is here. What did it cause? V'anoichi lo yodati. I did not know the Anoichi. I did not know the I. In the silence of the I, one can experience the true meaning of prayer. V'anoichi, the I, lo yodati became silent for a few moments. What does this mean? What this means is very briefly is, in every person's life, there are two dimensions. There's one part of me that is filled with fears, insecurities, and a whole host of difficult emotions. You may have jealousy, anger, frustration, resentment, dread, a sense of competitiveness, of hatred, or difficult various emotions that we have in life. Each person according to their nature and their nurture. And we sometimes live our lives based on all of these challenges and problems. There's another dimension of a person. And this dimension of a person is your deeper core, which is essentially a part of Ein Saif. It's a conduit for the infinite light of God. And therefore, it is essentially infinite. It's invincible, it's sacred, it's wholesome, it's optimistic, it's confident, it's powerful, it's happy. In the works of Kabbalah, Musa, Chesidus, it's known as the Nefesh Alekis and the Nefesh Bahamas. We can operate on a level, a beastly level of consciousness, or operate on a divine, transcendental level of consciousness, and both are very, very real in our life. What happens in davening, in a real davening is, one person walks in to davening, and out of the door emerges a new person. What do I mean by a new person? I don't mean a new person, physically a new person. A new person means davening is the opportunity for this human being, to align himself or herself with your true self. To be able to see yourself, not as a limited, finite, wounded, bruised, insecure, fearful, psychological midget, but to be able to discover and align yourself with your divine core, which is really the core of all of existence. I come to the Hallelujahs. What do we do in all those psalms before davening, before you get to your needs? There's the Haidu and there's Baruch Shama and there's Psukkah de Zimra, or if you do Baruch Shama before Haidu, Svart Ashkenaz, it's really irrelevant to our discussion here. And you discuss Ashrei and this Hallelujah and that Hallelujah and this praise and that praise, and so on and so forth. Essentially, if you look at it all, what you're learning and you're trying to meditate on and to discover is you talk about snow. You talk about ice. You talk about age, the weather. 
fire, hail, storms, winds, harim, gvoyas, mounds, mountains, eats pre fruit trees, chaya, kol behema, animals, mammals, birds. It's really a study of the world. What are you talking about? You're identifying the cosmos as a reflection of divine energy. And what that helps you do is, it helps you synchronize yourself with your own core of divine energy. So that the real experience of davening is a very, very profound journey from the outer self into the inner self. Now really, if you know the Zoya and the works of the Ariza and the works of the Balatanya and others, they discuss how davening is a journey through worlds. Till Baruch Sha'amar, you climb the world number one, consciousness number one, Asiya, action. From Baruch Sha'amar till Yishtabach, you climb into world number two called Yitzira, another level of consciousness. Yoytzer Avas Oilam Krishma, you go into Bria. Shmaina Esra, you reach Atzillas, the fourth state of consciousness. And then the rest of Davening, you come down. Now we really need, Bezer Hashem, one of our dreams, to do a five or ten week series on the journey of Davening. But here I'm just trying to give you an outline, a sketch, that in davening I allow myself to lose the sense of I, the insecure little ego that separates me from the world, separates me from myself, separates me from infinity, separates me from truth, and puts me into a little bubble. I can sense my oneness with infinity because anoichi loyadati. Because the I, I did not know. For a few minutes, I lost my sense of self-consciousness. I don't have to protect myself. I don't have to win every argument. I'm not afraid to say I'm sorry. The person who emerges from davening is a much more confident husband, wife, father, mother, successful person, wholesome person, simply on a psychological level. In the silence of the I... I get to meet the thou. In the silence of the I, I get to meet infinity. I get to be in touch with my own truth. That is davening. That's a mental, emotional, and spiritual exercise. So davening is the time when I can align myself with my own essence. When I discover the idealism, the purity within me. It's a daily battle for transcendence. And transcendence, my friends, is a daily battle. It's very easy to surrender in this battle. But davening is the daily battle of transcendence, what the great Jewish philosophers, mystics would call Hakbara Satsura al Hachoimer, to see your body in the context of your soul, to see the unity, the holistic unity of your life. It's an opportunity for dvekas, for intimacy, for oneness. It allows me to flex my spiritual muscles. Spirituality is a muscle. You use it or you lose it. <laughs> like all muscles. If you don't use it, you lose it. It empowers my soul to soar to the heavens and beyond. And I want to focus for a moment on the word tadavan. How do we say tadavan? Lihispalel. Now, palel means judging. Davening, you judge yourself. You're introspective. You look at your insecurities, you look at your fears, you look at your wounds, and you don't allow that to take over your life. But it also means something else. 
And I'm going to focus for a moment on the grammar of Lashon Kaidish. If I want to dress my child, how do I say that? Anybody here? I'm dressing my child. Ani malbish etayelet sheli, right? Lahalbish. True? What about if I want to dress myself, to get dressed myself, what do I say? Lehislabesh. Or lehitlabesh. Lasoik or lahasik is to give you a job. If I myself am occupying myself in something, I say lehit asik. So what does lehispalel mean? Lehispalel is talking about who? It's reflexive, it's about me. Lehislabesh, I'm getting dressed. Lehispalel is about my experience. What's this experience? So the word palel we have in Parshas Vayechi, a very moving scene. Ya- Yaakov is about, he's soon going to pass away. And he meets his beloved son Yosef. And what does he say? Ra'oi fanecha loi filolti. I never filolti to see your face and now I see your children too. Wow. What does filolti mean? Anybody? What they say in Chede, you remember? You were expelled for that session? Because you didn't dive in nicely? Ra'oi fanecha loi filolti, no, translate. Rashi says, I didn't even have the guts to think about it. We would say, I never imagined it. I never anticipated it. I never imagined it. I never even thought it as a possibility. It didn't even rise up into my mind. What's lehispalel? To imagine. Who should imagine? Me, me. What should I imagine? What should I look to? What, what am I imagining? Another word, chazan. We love chazanim. Right? You know about the chazan in New Jersey? He was a chazan Rosh Hashanah. And he came home and he's not making kiddush. His wife says, why are you make, not making kiddush? Rosh Hashanah, it's 3 o'clock. He says, I fast on Rosh Hashanah. He says, you fast? You've been eating for 70 years. You're not chayach to fast. He says, this Rosh Hashanah, I'm fasting. She says, come on, I know you, Yankel. Tell me the truth. No, you can't lie to your wife. He says, I'll tell you the truth. I finished davening. The president of the shul comes over to me, I'm in Nouvelle, and he tells me, that's a davening? That's a davening? That sounded like the angel of death. This shul, you're never coming back again. No, a wife always knows how to build the confidence of her husband. So she says, a president, who is he? What does he know? He's just repeating what the rest of the shul says. <laughs> so there's a chazen. What's the word for chazen? Everybody will say, canter. What's the real root of the word chazan? Chazoin. What's chazoin? A vision. It has to do with lehispalo. What's this vision that I'm talking about? Tadavan is really to cultivate the muscle of visionary thinking. To align your vision with God's vision. Hashem wants every person to suck the marrow out of life. To live the most powerful, awesome, blessed, happy, and extraordinary life. The problem is, I can't imagine that for me. I look at myself and I say, who am I to be happy? Who am I to be powerful? Who am I to be successful? Who am I to be gorgeous? Who am I to be wholesome? Who am I to have a good marriage? Who am I to be, to be, to be a wholesome person? Who am I to be fearless? Who am I to have an impact? Lehispalel. 
Yaakov said, I could never meet my son again. Can you yourself align your vision for your life with the divine vision? Whether it's physical, emotional, social, whether it's health, or livelihood, or serenity, or wisdom, or happiness, or your relationship with your children, or redemption, or peace in the world, or peace in your heart, or peace in your home. Here again, I become a conduit for God's vision for my life. I don't want to remain limited in my own small, miniature, finite, and sometimes very, very small vision of what life can be. And you know who leads the prayers? You need somebody who is a chazan. He has a vision. <laughs> That's why a shliach tzibur is important. What type of vision does he have? We stand and we say, Hashem You open my mouth. What do you mean you open my mouth? Suddenly God opened your mouth. Yeah, I need you to open my lips. Let my mouth communicate your praise, your energy. Let my mouth become a conduit for your vision. Let our two visions become aligned. And this is all in the words of the Rambam. You express praise. You express your needs. And you express gratitude. So, in summation, I would say, more than anything else, what I would call davening is simply an opportunity. It's not a punishment. It's not a penalty. It's not an exercise in seeing how fast people can get a negative feeling towards Judaism. More than anything else, it's an opportunity. It's an invitation. And let's face it, I'm not always ready for invitations. I'm not always ready for opportunities. Sometimes I'm tired, I'm depressed, I'm exhausted, I'm not in the mood, I have a headache, I'm in a horrible mood, I'm having issues, too many texts, too many financial... And sometimes I ignore the opportunity. Because to focus on an opportunity takes discipline. It takes maturity, it takes work. But it's an opportunity. It's the opportunity where God says, allow me to be your best friend. Allow me to be your best ally. Allow me to hug you and allow yourself to be hugged by me. Ki ato shoimeya tfilas kolpe, we say in Davani. This infinite God says, I want to hear what you have to say. That's why Chana could be wounded and yet full of serenity. She could be broken and whole at the same time. Freilich und zerbrochen. She has real needs and real yearnings and she may not understand everything about her life, but she's never hopeless. There's somebody that she can cry to, she could speak to, she could pour her heart out to, and she could become one with. Which brings me to the next question of our dear friend. Why the same text every day? A little creativity. Why not have a sign in every shul? Zog was the vilst. Say what you want. Instead of and this guy goes into a depression, this guy starts texting, this guy gets into an argument, this guy's already done. And the truth is, 
biblical davening didn't have a structure. For a thousand years, how did Jews daven? However they wanted. You could get up, sit on your couch, stand in your kitchen or whatever they had then, go out to your field and your farm and speak to God for 29 seconds and say, this is what's on my heart. Now tell me what's on yours. And you'll tell it to me throughout the day. A structure was created and a text was created as we know. And I should say as the generations grew or, or, or developed, the text only became bigger and bigger. I dread to think what our great-grandchildren are going to have to deal with. Especially in an era when people love adding every stringency in the world. But what is the meaning of this? It's really a wonderful question. I'm going to address three points and I'm going to do this briefly. Number one, a lot of people don't know. Part of the law of davening is that in the middle of Shemayin Esra you can add as much as you want and express all of your experiences and feelings and emotions. According to Halach and Shulchan Aruch, in every single blessing, you can add as much as you want, connected to the context of that blessing. And in the blessing of Shema Kaleinu, you can talk about anything. There are people who in the middle of Shema Kaleinu take a break and for 10 minutes they talk to God. They could talk to Him in Hebrew, in Yiddish, in English. And God is a multilinguist. He understands Russian and even Mandarin, Japanese, Portuguese, and Italian. And some say even Yiddish. So in Shema Kaleinu, you could talk about whatever you want. You could talk about a dentist appointment. You could talk about a doctor appointment. You could talk about your therapy appointment. You could talk about your issues with dieting. You could talk about your issues with your mother, with your sister, with your brother, with your Shalom Bayis, with your teenage kids, with your own addictions, with your own spouse issues, or whatever else there is in the world going on in your life. That's number one. Number two, and people should take advantage. Number two, and this is already a little uh, deep, on a deeper level. The Anshei Knesses Hagdoila, which was a group of 120 great sages who rebuilt Klal Yisrael after the horrible destruction of the first temple. Among them was Ezra, Nehemiah, Mordechai, Chagai, Scharia, Malachi. The last one the Mishnah says was who? Shimon, Hatzadik Hoya. The opening of Pirkei Yavas, the ethics of the fathers. He was the last survivor of this tremendous group of 120. They were the ones, just for history purposes, who instituted most of the sacred texts of Judaism today. What do I mean by that is? All the blessings that we have. I should say not all. Most of the blessings that we have. Albir Chametz. Laniach Tfilin. Bayer Priya Eitz. Hamaytzi Lechem and Aretz. Priya Gafen. Brachas of enjoyment, brachas of mitzvahs. The text of davening of Shemayin Esra. These are their institutions. So we're dealing with an institution that dates back approximately 2,500 years. These were some of the greatest giants of Jewish history. In the words of davening of Shemayin Esra, they compressed infinite layers of meaning that addressed themselves to all of the needs of Jews collectively, individually, and all of their most deep, profound, and authentic needs. And that's why it's so important, the text. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Think about your own life. 
I'll tell you what memory I have. I was teaching in a yeshiva once. And a 17-year-old boy who was in my class phoned me one night at home. It was late at night. It was 11 or 12. I said, why aren't you sleeping? And he says, I have to open up about something. As we say in Tehillim, we say it in the morning in Davening. Well, he took that Pasuk literally. And he got very involved with somebody 17 years old, and he couldn't get his mind off it. And I asked him, what do you want? He says, all I want is I want to run away from the world. With this person, I want to go to New Zealand or to Mount Everest and live the rest of my life on the mountain. And I don't know what to do. I can't think about anything else. Now, if this person would be told by the halacha, when you daven, just talk about yourself what you need. What do you think his need at that moment was? Nothing. One thing. That this plainness, bas plainness, <laughs> should be ready to run away to New Zealand. That's his need. Now, when I'm on the phone, I was smiling. Why was I smiling? Because I knew that in six months, they're going to hate each other. They're going to want to kill each other. But I couldn't tell that to him now. Because that's not where he was. I had to listen. Two hours I had to listen about how he found Messiah. He found his Mashiach. Okay. That's where he is. What did you daven to God personally when you were 15? What did you daven for? When you were 11, what did you daven for? When you were 19, when you were 23, when you were 27? And how relevant were those requests a year later, two years later? 20 years ago, what was the most burning issue in your life? What did you daven for? And do you even remember that today? We're mortal. We're transient people. We're people of flesh and blood. One day I have a crush here, and one day I have a crush there. One day I'm obsessed with this, one day I'm obsessed with this. One day I have this type of vision, another type of vision. One day I want to be the president of the United States of America. One day I want to be the chazan of my shul. <laughs> One day the person wants to be married, wants to be divorced, wants to be an entrepreneur, wants to be a schnorrer, wants to be a rabbin shalkol b'nei wants to be an amaretz. That's what people are. So you could daven and you should daven. You speak to God about who you are today, that's fine. But davening is really a challenge to be able to open yourself up to needs that are real, they're authentic, and therefore they're timeless and eternal. They're not going to change in 5 years, they're not going to change in 10 years, they're not going to change in 30 years, they're not going to change in 40 years. It's a challenge for me to grow. It's a challenge for me never to become completely narcissistic, self-centered, but to open myself up to the full gamut of what life has to offer, which ultimately, from my violin to play, every one of those chords has to be played, and I can't, I can't cut off my chords. One of my chords. I was listening, one of, uh, a few nights ago, there was a therapist who was giving a session on a telephone conference about betrayal. Betrayal. And uh, he said a very fascinating statistic. He was speaking about 
men or husbands or wives who betray their spouses going to somebody else. And he's an expert in this because he deals with it constantly on a daily basis. And he shared something very powerful. And that was the, the statistics, the research shows that around 7% of people who betray their spouse and then get divorced, only 7% of them get married. And those who do, 90% get divorced. So they left their family for their Mashiach and it never, it usually doesn't end in success. Why is that? The answer is because when two people connect in a marriage, they're not just connected on some romantic level. Somebody got to do laundry. Somebody got to cook. Somebody got to maintain a house. Somebody got to raise kids. There's Shabbos and Yom Tif and Chametz and Pesach. There's buying shoes and tzitzis and the stress of tuition. There's high schools and mesiftis and yeshivas and then Shaduchim. Now, who has time for romance? Between B'dikas Chametz, Bia Chametz, Marek Koyrech and Shulchan Oyrech, who has time to think? And every moment there's another bill on the table. This one wants this, this and then there's Shalach Manas. People already are not preparing for Shalach Manas. You got a Shalach Manas. Yeah? When he betrays his spouse and he has this extracurricular activity, let's put it that way, 3% of his life connects with 3% of her life, and those are the 3% of the life that's perfect. They don't have to talk about kids. They don't got to talk about 17-year-old teenagers. They don't have to talk about the shvigah coming for Pesach, Achman al-Islam. All they can talk about is some milkshake that they'll pick up in Teaneck and look at the milkshake and melt in ecstasy. There's no mamashes to it. There's no substance. And then when things come out and you get used to this person, you come to real life, plots, it was a balloon, it pops. People don't realize. That's the gift of the text of davening. The text of davening doesn't say, don't say your own prayer. Say what you want. Talk about whatever you want. You're a 17 year old and all you want is to get into this camp and you want this girl to be your friend. Because that's the click in Beis Yaakov that you want to be popular with. Even though you need this click via kadochas, they need you much more than you need them. And trust me, not getting into that camp is probably the greatest blessing that will ever happen to you. But this is where you're at. Talk to God and say, this is what I want. And maybe you're lucky, God will say no. <laughs> if you're lucky, if not, he'll say yeah. You have to be careful because sometimes prayers get fulfilled. But davening doesn't let you stay stuck. It really, the Anshei Knesset Zagdoyle put in all of life. They put in the infinity of life. Atachayne Ladam Das is a timeless need. Hashiveinu is a timeless need. Rifaenu is a timeless need. I was once at a, at a big Shabbaton, a big lecture. So I was speaking about davening. So somebody raised their hand and said, What's this racism in Shmoy I said, where's the racism in Shmoy They say, Heal us. Take, give us recovery. Give us recovery. Why not all ill people should have recovery? So I said, your, your question, you'll see, is illogical, because what's the conclusion of the blessing? He heals the sick of the Jewish people. Judaism believes that God doesn't heal the sick of the Gentiles. Who heals them? 
Of course, God. So what are we? What was this mamish apikursus and kfir? I said, I'll explain to you what it means. It was a little humorous. I said, Jews have a unique situation, and if you're a Gentile, you should be happy that you're not mentioned in this blessing. And that is, Jews and an alamal crank. Jews always have bodily issues, right? I never met a Jew in my life. And I said, how are you feeling? And he looked at me and he said, perfect. Rabbi, why, why? Perfect. Always. My back, my back, I don't know what's going on. My back, and it's probably emotional, Dr. Sarna. My stomach, my neck, my feet, I can't digest, I can't walk, I think I need a wheelchair. Yesterday I almost died. I'm about to have a stroke, I'm having a heart attack, I'm in the middle of a heart attack. I have migraines, it's too hot, it's too cold, the chair is not comfortable. So we're saying, For Jews who are always complaining, God help them, if you're a guy, you should be happy you're not in this blessing. You could just walk tall, slim, confident and healthy. And if you have a flat tire, you get down and you jack up the car and you fix the flat tire instead of calling Chaveirim, Mishaskim, Mishoirim, Mizamrim, Chazonim and Chavre Kaddisha because you have a flat tire and nobody ever taught you that you're allowed to get out of your car and stop eating a shawarma wrap with a black and white and diet Pepsi when you're driving. Driving is not made for meals. Tables are made for meals. Driving a made to drive and to fix flat tires. Any Gentile will tell that to you. So this is a special bracha. Tomorrow when you're saying refeinu, if you start laughing, the gabai the may throw you out of shul. I just want to add one more dimension, and that is, how many, any pianists here, how many keys does a piano have? 88? 88. Mozart or Beethoven or Mendelssohn did not have to invent new keys for the piano. They took the same 88 keys of the pianos that we have in our homes. And yet when I sit down at the piano, I'm like, da 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 Dum dum, or da 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 dum, and then when a Mozart sat down at the piano, symphonies were created. It's never about adding a new key. The present keys lend themselves to infinite compositions. Creativity should not be blamed on external circumstances. Artists and creative people see creativity everywhere because if the doors of perception are cleansed, everything appears as is, infinite. And when we rely on external structures to change every day for creativity, it's inauthentic creativity. The texts of davening lend themselves to infinite compositions for those who have the willingness and the mental eagerness to be able to study them, to be able to focus on them. Next question that was asked. Why every day? Why three times a day? This is what drives people crazy. Shachris, Mincha, Mairev.
And I'll also address that, and again, I'm going to address it briefly. There is a fascinating medrash that is quoted in the introduction to Ein Yaakov, which is the compilation of stories of Gemara created by Rabbeinu Yaakov ben Chaviv in the 16th, in the 15th and 16th century. It's also quoted by the Maharal in his Sefer Nesivois Oilam, the Maharal of Prague. It's a very strange medrash. The medrash asks, what is the most fundamental Pasuk in Torah? If you have to summarize Judaism, what is the most basic verse? Not what is the most significant Pasuk. The Rambam says, Anoichi Hashem Alekecha and Achois Loitan Timna have the same holiness. But in terms of summarizing the philosophy of Judaism, Ben Azai says, B'Tselem Elekim Adam. That's the most central Pasuk. The human being was created in the image of God. Ben Zoyma says, Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad. Ben Nana says, Vahafta Lerecha Kamoicha. Man was created in God's image, man and woman. God is one. Love your neighbor like yourself. Ben Pazi says, you know which Pasuk? Parshas Pinchas. Es hakeves ha'echa tasav ha'boiker, ve'es hakeves ha'sheni tasav ha'boiker. Offer a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening. Omar, Omad, Rebbe, Al-Raglov, the Rebbe, stood up on his feet and he said, Halacha ke Ben Pazi. The Halacha is like Ben Pazi. A lamb in the morning, a lamb in the afternoon. I ask you a question. God is one. Love your fellow like yourself. A person is in the image of Hashem. Revolutionary ideas. To sacrifice a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the afternoon. Maybe not to wear shatnas. Don't wear wool and linen. Don't eat cheeseburgers on Yom Kippur. And that's the halacha. The most important posik is, you offer a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the afternoon, known as the carbon tumit, carbon oila, which by the way was the origin of shachris and as the Gemara says in Brachas, Lamadalat. How do you understand this? So I'm going to explain an idea. The nucleus of it comes from the Maharal in the Siv Asylum. And I'll just illustrate it. One of the greatest musicians and composers in the history of humanity is a man known as Beethoven. He became blind and he became deaf but didn't stop him from being one of the greatest composers. Beethoven rose every single morning at dawn, what we would call Alois HaShachar, even though he didn't know that term. He rose before dawn, and he made himself a coffee. And he was very, very particular about this, or as we would say, yakish about this. Each cup had to be made with exactly 60 beans. How many beans do you put in your coffee? Well, Beethoven, every cup at dawn had to be made of exactly 60 beans. And he counted out the 60 beans each time. He would then sit at his desk and compose music until 3 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon. Subsequently, He would go for a long walk. He would take with him a pencil and a few sheets of music paper to record any ideas that entered into his brain on the walk. Each night after supper, he would have a beer, smoke a pipe, and go to bed latest 10 o'clock p.m. And he did this 
for decades. Why do I share this with you? You could study, and you could do this, you don't have to take my word for it. The lives of Jews and Lahavdal non-Jews, people who were considered the most creative in history, innovators, trailblazers, revolutionaries in all fields. And you will find one common denominator. And you know what that is? Consistency. Routines, every day, almost to the extreme of what you would call Meshagas. It's like, chill out. Rigid structures and routines in an extraordinary way. Almost by every single one. When they woke up, what they did right after, hour to hour, minute to minute. Of course, I'm sure there's always exceptions, but on a general level. There's a book somebody once wrote. He collected the stories, the biographies of greatest creative people. And he showed how much routine they had in their life. In fact, there were some of them who were very wealthy. But there was one famous, famous novelist. He hired himself. He got himself hired in a post office. Post office. He said he needs the responsibility to go into the post office. What's the meaning of this? So here's the paradox of life. Innovators, pioneers, groundbreakers, trailblazers who formulated new ideas, originated new forms of expression, did things in a way that nobody ever did it before. They all broke the mold. They changed the landscape. They ventured into the unknown. You would think their lives should have looked like absolute adventure and chaos. Their daily lives were opposite. Ritualized, and routine. You can even call them boring. You know why? I'll tell you why. Consistency, routines, and rituals constitute the soil in which the seeds of invention and creativity can grow. Creativity is a seed, and it could blossom into a beautiful tree, but a seed needs soil. A seed needs ear. A seed needs sunlight. A seed needs water. That soil is stable, consistent. It lays there on the earth, doesn't move. The soil which allowed the seeds of creativity to grow is the consistency and the routine. This is what the Maharal says about this Madrash. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad God is one. Wow. Now let's go eat kugel. Vahaftal Recha Kamoicha I love you. Now let's put you in Cheirem. Or somebody once told me he was in a shul or Shoshana uh, saying uh, and our father was saying Kerachem of Albonim Kein Terachem Aleinu as a father has compassion over his children have command. And as he did that he gave a frask to his son. You could scream, but alikim Adam, and then you say, "Besides me, I'm a nobody. I'm a loser." The uniqueness of Yiddishkeit is a Jew wakes up in the morning and he knows, "I'm a servant of God. I'm a soldier. I'm an ambassador of love, light, and hope. 
I make a sacrifice in the morning. I'm about to retire. The day is winding down. I make another sacrifice. What made Judaism so great and produced such an unbelievable nation is not that they had great slogans and great philosophies and great theologies. They had the vision to implement prophetic ideals in concrete life. And that only happens through the daily consistency and routines. Yes, you could tell Jews, Davin when you're in the mood. <laughs> you know what it would look like? The davening would be unbelievable because it's only people who are in the mood. Right? But how often are you in the mood? Tell me. <laughs> how often are you in the mood? It's like telling a husband, be here for your wife when you're in the mood. I don't mean to spoil anybody's... Uh, It's great to be in the mood. That's not where greatness happens. All inventions is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Somebody writes, Fu Haltman, somebody writes, I am simply, I wake up in the morning, Rabbi Jacobs, I wake up in the morning and I'm not in the mood of davening. <laughs> I'm not interested. I pull myself to shul, I daven, sometimes I daven at home, but I'm just completely not in the mood of it and I feel so empty. Shabbos, Yom Tif, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur is the worst, but really every day, especially Shachris, it's so long, I'm just not in the mood. I thank you for this letter and other similar questions. I also relate to it. I have the same, uh, the same experience. Welcome to the club. You're not the only one. But I want to say two things and also brief, two brief ideas about this. Number one, so what? We have this fall fallacy that when you do something that you're not in the mood of, it's meaningless. I would argue it's the opposite. When you do something that's meaningful to you, that's valuable to you, that's precious to you, and you're not in the mood, it's more meaningful, it's more precious. I'll give you an example. Somebody calls me up, their best friend is making a wedding, their best friend is marrying off a daughter. And he tells me, I'm not in the mood of going to the wedding. I want to just climb into bed with a book and not go to the wedding. So I tell him, so you're not going to go? He says, it's my best friend. I feel like I have to go to the wedding. So I'm going to go to the wedding. Is that a meaningful experience or a meaningless experience? You say, oh, he's not in the mood, he doesn't care for him. When he says, I feel I have to go to the wedding, he doesn't mean that he feels it in his bones. He doesn't. He wants to go to sleep. What it means is, I have values in life that constitute my core self. Sometimes my emotions are aligned with my values. Sometimes they're not. When my emotions are aligned with my values, then it's easy to do it. When my emotions are not aligned with my values, and I have to put up a fight for my values, that's amazing, that's incredible, that's powerful. I ask you a question. You come home at night from work. Are you in the mood of your kids? Anybody wants to tell us? In this class, only truth. <laughs> I know the women are. I'm talking about the men. You're in the mood of your kids? You come home. Oizgehakt, zumazikt, zuschlochet, 
verwundet, zerbrochen, right? And each child is a handful, not a handful, a planetful, I'm sorry, a universeful, of needs, and everyone has an attitude, especially once they hit teenage years, which today is six. <laughs> everyone has an attitude. Everyone tells you how to live your life, and you're a horrible mother, and you're the worst father who ever existed. So some fathers are like, okay, I'm stopping all the credit cards, no supper, not making a bar mitzvah for you. Those are the healthy ones. So some like, I'm not in the mood of you, get out. Some fathers, what they do is, Mayriv. And somehow their wives believe that Mayriv is like Kol Nidre. It takes two hours. Right? The guy who once explained jokingly why Yaakov was Masak and Mayriv. Avram Shachris and Yitzchak Mincha. Why Yaakov Mayriv? Because Yaakov came home and Leah told him, Reuven has an earache. Shimon has a virus. Levi has the flu. Yehuda is a little terrorist. Yisachar has some issues. Zvulun thinks he's the new entrepreneur. Don doesn't talk. Naftali is running all over the place. Asha, I don't know what's going on with him. These kids are going to need a lot of therapy. Yaakov, you stay home tonight. You give them a bath. You put them to bed. You tell them a story. Nurture them. Tell them. Listen to them. And Yaakov says, Maidiv. It's time to do Maidiv. If I was Yaakov, I would also be Mesach and Tvila Sarvis. But then there's a father who comes home, or a mother who comes home, and says, I'm not in the mood. I'm upset. I'm actually in a bad mood. I'm drowsy, I'm exhausted, I have a little headache. But I have a question. If somebody would come to you and say, I will give you $25 billion, my son once asked me this question, you won't have to work another day in your life, your great-great-grandchildren won't have to work a day in their life, there's only one condition, you have to give up this child. This child who's driving you crazy, you have to give up forever, and you get $25 billion. If you're a normal, healthy person, you don't have to think about it. The answer is no. It's not even a thought. It's not even a consideration. We had this conversation because my son asked me once. He said, Tati, if somebody comes to you on Shabbos and he asks you to sign a paper, and for the signing that paper, he's going to give you $25 billion. Would you sign the paper on Shabbos? So I told him no. He said, I don't believe you. <laughs> he said, it's impossible. Of course you're going to sign the paper. You won't tell anybody. So you could can give you to give you you could continue to give you shiurim, but uh, for sure for twenty five billion dollars, of course you're going to sign the paper. Explain to me what you're thinking that you're not going to sign the paper. He's a little kid, so I needed an illustration. So I said, let me ask you a question. If somebody comes to me and says, I'll give you twenty five billion dollars, but you can't see your son again, what do you think Tati would say? <laughs> so he said, Oh, now you won't. Now you won't do it. I said, do you think it would be a struggle? I would have to struggle in my mind. Should I? Should I not? 25 billion, my boy. Eh, let's see if he behaves. We'll give him a few weeks of a test. Eh. He says, no. So I said, so a Jew who understands what Shabbos is, it's exactly the same thing. He doesn't have to think about it. Because Shabbos, $25 billion can't buy Shabbos. There are things in life that don't have a price tag. They're priceless. It's not that you can go up with price. They're priceless. Somebody may not understand it or may not be aware of it. If it's not your child, you don't understand it. 
But that's there's some, some things like that in life. So this father who comes home in a horrible mood and he says, my deepest value in life is to be close to my child. To be there for my child. And therefore, even though I'm really not interested, it's that I'm not conscious of who I really am now because I had a hard day. But I'm going to focus on this child because this is who I really am. This is what I really care. This is what he needs. You think that's a meaningful relationship or a meaningless relationship? Is that something to mock and say, yeah, it's nothing. You're, you're a faker. You're superficial. On the contrary. The same is true with davening. So you're not in the mood. It's vast. Sometimes you are, sometimes you're not. If it's a real value to connect to who you really are, to your soul, to your God, to infinity, everything we discussed above, don't worry about it. Don't delegitimize yourself. Because your moods are not always consistent with your deepest values. The only thing I would say is, don't lie. Never lie to yourself. Don't say to yourself, I'm really in the mood, I'm inspired. Because then you become an erratic. You become an unhealthy person. In fact, you should talk about it to God. Put on your tefillin or open your sit and say, God, I have to be honest with you. I can't tell this to my child. You don't tell your child, I'm not in the mood of you. But, <laughs> he won't appreciate that. But God has good confidence. It's fine. Tell him, I'll tell you the truth. I woke up this morning. You were the last thing on my mind. I'm, I'm really, really not in the mood. And you got you to bear with me. But this is precious to me. And you don't imagine what a powerful experience that is. Because it's authentic. It's real. And the Baal Shem Tev, the Holy Baal Shem Tev, articulated this idea beautifully in a posik, With which we open up the davening in the morning. It's a pasuk from Bilam. Bilam said, "Matoivu oyalecha Yaakov, Mishkinoisecha Yisrael." So the Baal Shem Tov said, "How good are your tents, Jacob? Your dwelling place is Israel. Why does Yaakov get a tent, and Yisrael gets a Mishkan Mishkinoisecha? And who comes first, Yaakov?" So the Baal Shem Tov said, "There are two types of Jews." An oil, a tent, is often an oil arai. It's a temporary tent, like when you go camping. A mishkan means a dwelling place. It could represent more permanence. There are two types of Jews. There's a Jew in the level of Yaakov, which means a hill. He constructs only tents for God, temporary tents. There's a Jew, Yisrael, he constructs a mishkan for Hashem. There's a Jew, he wakes up in the morning. He has his mishkan, his dwelling place for God. In the afternoon, minchat, night, mairiv. That's a Yisrael Jew. And then there's another Jew, he's a Yaakov Jew. He doesn't have a permanent dwelling place. He's not even sure he wants it. But as the Baal Shem Tev put it, eight minutes before Shkia, he looks at the clock and he says, Oi, Mincha! And he puts up fast a tent, and he davens Mincha. And you would think it's meaningless. So the Pasuk says, Yaakov, before There's something very, very precious about that person who struggles who has to transcend, who has to fight for what he or she really believes in. Sometimes everything is in sync and sometimes it's not. I want to read one more letter and finish with a story and then we'll continue this theme next week. There's a lot of more questions that came in and I didn't get to address. 
I tried to daven. For many years I davened, but now I am too angry at Hashem. And my anger prevents me from davening. I open up a siddur and I have to close it. There's so much resentfulness, there's so much frustration because of things that happen in my life, because of disappointments, because I feel God never answered me, I feel He doesn't care about me, I feel nobody cares about me, I'm just full of anger. How can I rediscover my Judaism and my prayer? And I say to you, don't bring this up with me. This you bring up with the one you're angry at. This is what your davening should be. This should be part of your davening. Tell Hashem, like you would tell a best, best friend who you could trust infinitely, all of your feelings. Tell him. Tell him about your anger. And I'll give you an example in a marriage. In a marriage, when a husband is very angry with his wife, or a wife is very angry with her husband, they could do one of two things. Well, they can lash out at each other. They can break some dishes. They could separate. That, yes. They can also repress it. And those of us who grew up in countries where parents practiced emotional constipation know how to do that very well. You repress it and that's it. Everything looks good. But probably one of the deepest and most powerful ways of dealing with it is if you bring the anger into the relationship. Meaning, if the wife can speak to the husband without him becoming defensive and explosive... Or the husband can speak to the wife and say, I'm feeling now very, very heavy anger or very, very heavy resentment. And suddenly, the anger brings you closer to each other. It becomes part of the relationship. The anger is now not only a negative aspect that causes you to drift from each other, to drift away, it actually brings you closer. You know why? Because even in your anger, you're close to each other. Because you could bring that into the relationship. Because there's a, there has to be a trust. If there's no trust, it's not going to work. But if there's a trust, what happens now is, in, in this anger, I can also trust you. I could be here with you. And you could appreciate what it is, even though it's not fun. But the, the condition has to be trust. The condition has to be that the anger is not all-consuming. I don't think that the only relationship I have with you is anger and there's nothing else. There has to be a, a, a part of me that cherishes the relationship, even though now I don't feel any of it. Now I feel anger. And that becomes one of the most powerful relationships. The same is true with Yiddishkeit. When you bring your anger that you're feeling into davening, that itself will make it one of the most powerful relationships. As the Gemara puts it in a different context. If you don't bring it in, you just repress it, it doesn't disappear. It just goes undercover and it leaks out in a million different ways. When you tell your wife, I'm not angry at you. My darling, you look so angry. What's going on? Me? I'm not angry at you. And then three hours later, an explosion about the keys. Like an atom bomb goes off. Everything comes out. But if you bring it in, if you present it, and you, you allow it to be what it is, then it actually not necessarily is transformed or eliminated or completely healed. But now it ha- doesn't have the power to destroy any part of the relationship. There was a Jew who I knew very well. My father, Olav Shalom, was a very close friend of his for many years. He passed away two years ago. 
summer 2016. His name was Eliezer Wiesel. Eli Wiesel. Eli Wiesel. Eli Wiesel grew up in Sigit. Came from a family of Vishnitz Chassidim. At the age of 14, he was deported to Auschwitz. He lost much of his family in the death camps, including his father and his mother and his sister, who were murdered. I think his father died from uh, either a typhus in the death camp. And he spent his life writing and talking about the Holocaust. He died two years ago at the age of 89. He was a journalist for many years. My father was a journalist, so they befriended each other as two journalists, Yiddish journalists. He was a very interesting person. He wrote a book shortly after the war called Night. Some of you have read it perhaps, Night. You read Night, anybody? It's a very dark book, as the name uh, indicates. And originally he wrote a book, the version was in Yiddish, 850 pages. Night is a condensed, brief version of the book in English. And there he writes some very, very harsh language about God. He describes when the Germans, when the SS hung a little child on the gallows. And because the body was so frail and so small, it took a very long time till the boy died. And he described what that scene did to him, a religious Jewish kid who grew up in Sigit with books and yeshiva and cheder, Talmud Torah. And he wrote what he thought of God at that moment, where he saw God at that moment, in this book night. In 1997, 50 years later, Erev Rosh Hashanah, the day before Rosh Hashanah, he published an op-ed, op-ed article in the New York Times. On the op-ed page of the New York Times, I remember my father got the Times and, I, and he opened it up and he was shocked. He called Wiesel, Erev Rosh Hashanah. He had this big article on the op-ed page of the Times, read by millions of people. A letter to God. I want to read to you Elie Wiesel's letter to God. Master of the universe, let us make up. It's time. How long can we go on being angry? More than 50 years have passed since the nightmare was lifted. Many things, good and less good, have since happened to those who survived it. They learned to build on ruins. Family life was recreated. Children were born. Friendships stuck. Does this mean that the wounds in their soul have healed? They will never heal. As long as a spark of the flames of Auschwitz and Treblinka glows in their memory, so long will my joy be incomplete. What about my faith in you, master of the universe? I now realize I never lost it. In night, when you read it, it looks like he lost it. He says that he lost his God. I realize I never lost it. Not even over there during the darkest hours of my life. I don't know why in Auschwitz I kept on whispering my daily prayers. And I kept on whispering the one reserved for Shabbos and the one reserved for the holidays. But I recited the prayers often with my father and on Rosh Hashanah Eve with hundreds of inmates at Auschwitz. Was it because the prayers remained a link 
to the vanished world of my childhood. In my testimony, I have written harsh words, burning words about your role in our tragedy. I would not repeat them today, but I felt them then. I felt them in every cell of my being. Why did you allow, if not enable the killer, day after day, night after night, to torment, kill, and annihilate tens of thousands of Jewish children? Why were they abandoned by your creation? These thoughts were in no way destined to diminish the guilt of the guilty. Their established culpability is irrelevant to my problem with you, Master of the Universe. But in my childhood, I did not expect much from human beings, but I expected everything from you. Where were you, God of kindness in Auschwitz? What was going on in heaven at the celestial tribunal while your children were marked for humiliation, isolation, and death only because they were Jewish? At one point I began wondering whether I was not unfair with you, God. After all, Auschwitz was not something that came down ready-made from heaven. Auschwitz was conceived by men. It was implemented by men, staffed by men. Their aim was to destroy not only us, their aim was to destroy you as well. Ought we not to think of your pain too? Watching your children suffer at the hands of your other children, haven't you also suffered? As we Jews enter the high holidays again, preparing ourselves to pray for a year of peace and happiness for our people and all people, let us make up master of the universe. In spite of everything that happened, yes, in spite, let us make up, dear God, for the child in me, it is unbearable to be divorced from you so long. You could see here a child who grew up with what I would call a spiritual vocabulary. We all have the vocabulary of the home. Some homes speak Yiddish, some English, some Hebrew, some Russian, some Asfardish pronunciation, Ashkenazish pronunciation, a Yemenite pronunciation. There's another vocabulary. There's something called a spiritual vocabulary. The ability to speak to God in an intimate way. Just like you speak to a real shrink, just like you speak to the best friend in the world, and even more than that. Because your best friend you still have to be sensitive to. And with God, you can unleash everything. Your most raw, naked, bruised, tormented wounds. He's waiting to hear. Elie Wiesel rebuilt his life. It was not easy. He did not do it in the regular path of what you would call the classic Shoimetairo Mitzvah, whose emunah remained inexplicably and incredibly intact one of the greatest miracles perhaps of human history to see what the generation of survivors did in spite of all of their dysfunction and torment and pain. Elie Wiesel struggled and he wrote about his struggles. But at the end, the fact that he could scream, protest and cry out to God gave him comfort. He could lean on something beyond the human machine. Elie Wiesel debated God for 50 years. It's not the classic thing that every Jew does, but that's what he did. He didn't agree to rationalize. He did not buy any answers or any explanations. He wrestled with the divine. Kisarisa im Kim. You wrestled with the divine. But he felt in, the bo- in his bones that there's somebody to wrestle with. There's somebody listening to him. 
There's somebody to fight with. That's what Chana told Eli. He could speak to God, cry to God, and be upset at God. So you writing this email in 2018, you could bring that in to your prayer. You could bring that in to your relationship. I'm going to conclude with a story. The story is about another survivor. I always found the story very inspiring, and I'll tell you when it happened. There was a Jew by the name of Simon Wiesenthal. You ever heard of Shimon? Shimon Wiesenthal. Simon Wiesenthal died in 2005. He was an Austrian Jew, a survivor. He spent four and a half years in German concentration camps. And after the war, he became the famous Nazi hunter. He dedicated his life to hunt down Nazis. And I should mention a few days ago the death of one of the bookkeepers at Auschwitz who was never brought ultimately to justice. Wiesenthal dedicated much of his life to gather information, to track down fugitive Nazis, to be brought to some level of justice, if you can call it justice. In Bratislava, in Slovakia, there was a conference of European rabbis a few years ago. It was two or three years before Wiesenthal died. He was 91 at the time. And the rabbis of Europe who came together in Bratislava presented a special award to Simon Wiesenthal. He was visibly moved by the gesture of the rabbis. And he says, when he gets up to the mic, I want to share with you an encounter that I had with a rabbi in 1945. The name of the rabbi was Reblazer Silver. Reblazer Silver was a character of characters. He was the chief rabbi of Cincinnati, the head of Agudas Harabonim, one of the heads of Ad Hatzola. He was a very interesting figure. He passed away in the 1960s. He was known as Reblazer Silver. And he was a character. He was a personality and he carried a lot on his shoulders. And he was a real askin. He was a real activist for the Jewish people. Reblazer Silver, he died in 1968, I think, Tavshin traveled to Europe after the war to try to help the survivors who were in displaced person camps and assist them in various needs. After the war, he visited Mauthausen. Mauthausen was the last of the camps where Wiesenthal was during the liberation. And uh, Rev. Silver organized a prayer, a public tefillah, for all the Jewish inmates who wanted to come daven with a minion for the first time in many years. And he met Simon Wiesenthal, who has just been liberated, and he invited him as a Jew to come to this service. Simon Wiesenthal tells Rabbi Silver, no way, I'm not coming. And I'll tell you why. When I was in the camp, I saw many different types of people do many different types of things. And I will say in parentheses, on just an interesting tidbit, somebody, a Jew, borrowed from Wiesenthal $10 in the DP camps. And he told him, next week I'm getting a package from America, I'm getting money. I'll pay you back next week. Six months later, he never paid him back. $10, 1946 was a lot of money in a DP camp. A year later, the man still didn't pay back. He comes over to Wiesenthal, and he says, my package finally came. I'm leaving next week on the ship to America. I want to give you back my $10. And he says, keep it. 
$10 is not worth me changing my opinion of you. <laughs> this was Wiesenthal. He was a sharp, sharp fellow. I'm not discussing if he was right or wrong, but this was his comment. So he says, I met a lot of people in the camps, do a lot of things, and trust me, Rabbi Silver, in those places, all colors, all true colors emerge. There's no shtick. There was one religious man in whose presence, when I first met him, I was in awe. Why? He managed to smuggle in a siddur, a Jewish prayer book, into the camp. I knew that he's risking his life, and I was amazed and inspired by a man who has such conviction and faith that he's ready to risk his life, not to part himself from his precious prayer book in which he wants to speak to God. Even though I, Wiesenthal, am not a religious person. I was amazed and I was in awe. Till the next day. And to my horror, I discovered a different story. He was renting out the Siddur to people in exchange for giving him their last piece of bread. I was so angry with this man. How could he take a Siddur, a holy book, and he's using it to take the last piece of bread of a hungry Muslim, of a hungry skeleton away. I will not pray, and I will not look at a Siddur, if this is how the supposed religious Jew behaves. I also wanted people's bread. But I wouldn't use the prayer book for that. He did. Prayer is not for me. Wiesenthal finished, and he walked away. The blaze of silver, you couldn't get so easily. He, he stood his own. He was a character. He was a personality. As he walks away, the blaze of silver taps him on his shoulder, and he says in Yiddish, Oi bistuanar, oi bistuanar, which means, you are such a fool. You are such a fool, which didn't seem uh, <laughs> appropriate, an appropriate response. He could say, you're wrong. Oi, nah, you're such a fool. Wiesenthal became intrigued. Why Rabbi Silver thinks that he's childish and foolish? He says, why are you calling me a nara fool? So the blazer Silver told him these words. He says, I have a question to you. Everybody has a panorama of life. We all see things. You see 180 degrees of the ball. As we look around, we all see things. The question is what our eyes get stuck on. What do I see? And what do I see? Or what do I see? Or what I am not blind to? What do I see? He says, that's why I call you childish. Childish. What are you focusing on? On a one manipulator who decided to use a siddur in order to take away people's last meals. This was his way of surviving. Okay. He manipulated the siddur and people's desperate need to pray to get some bread. I got it. So you're focusing on this, let's call him, less than noble person. Why don't you focus on the dozens of Jews who were ready to give away their last piece of bread in order to be able to use a siddur, in order to be able to talk to God in Mauthausen, people whom the Germans crushed, decimated, 
deprive them from the last vestige of human dignity. The rats and mice in Auschwitz were treated better than the Jews, as a survivor once told me. They had nothing left, not even bones. Forget family. And these people, who were supposed to become worthless rats and worse, held on to something that the SS couldn't destroy. They held on to something. They wanted to talk to a God who wasn't saving them. Not one, not two. He was renting it out to many people. In spite of all their suffering, they had something that wasn't destroyed. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that a miracle of all miracles? That's what you should look at. For them, you should come to the prayer. Wiesenthal quietly followed Reblazer Silver into the shul for davening. Sixty years later, at the age of 91, at this conference of European rabbis, shortly before he died, he shared the story. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.